Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You had a figure in the book, the idea that, that one cell phone uses something like two refrigerators worth of electricity. Well, it's a controversial number, but it has been argued that if you watched uh, an hour of Netflix a week at the highest uh, resolution you possibly can, it equals the consumption of about two refrigerators, the consumption over a year of two refrigerators. That's a controversial issue, but and those things are very hard to, to measure, but that's something that raises the question, how much of this invisible, clean industry is really doing damage to the environment on a, on a par with some of the sort of traditional industrial industries that we're... Welcome to Radio Motherboard. This is Alex Pasternak, and today we're thinking about the human and environmental impact of our technology with Richard Maxwell, a political economist of media at Queens College here in New York City. And for that, we're teaming up with another podcast, Team Human. Never mind that the words team and human are kind of like the exact opposite of radio and motherboard. This is a podcast after our own heart. We're definitely on the team. It's hosted by Douglas Rushkoff, the writer, critic, and professor who has spent the past three decades trying to untangle media, technology, and the economy with the hope of building a society that's a little more conscious and a little more human. I first encountered Rushkoff in early 2001 when I saw his documentary Merchants of Cool. It's a really fascinating look at the mass mining, manufacturing, and selling of cool as seen through the lens of what then, for a certain part of the screen viewing public, uh, myself included, had a kind of monopoly over cool, MTV. Rushkoff pulled back the curtain on MTV and on the whole culture in a way that I think sheds light on the feedback loop of marketing and culture that informs a lot of today's media for better and for worse. When Motherboard spoke with Rushkoff in 2012, he was in our documentary, Free the Network. This is what he had to say about our more data-driven version of that world, a world where cool hunting is taken to the extreme. Our interactions online occur on platforms whose function, whose purpose is not to promote our social interaction, but to exploit our social interaction. Now you are inhabiting a commercial environment that was constructed by people and companies in order to promote certain behaviors and attitudes from you. We have an entire way of life 
that is predicated on a faulty premise, right? on a faulty premise about profit and money and corporatism, which are, are human inventions. You know, the invention of the corporation, the invention of centralized currency, our commitment to uh, debt-based uh, uh, business structures, the uh, a, a globalist system through which we outsource investment and savings to other authorities, the distrust that's been propagated, you know, between people so that we would rather buy something from a company we don't know than get a service from someone else. The alienation communities have from their own ability to create value. And these are big, big things that are not just hardwired into our brains, but built into the landscape of America with suburbs and cities and manufacturing and commerce and taxation that pays for roads for fast food to be cheaper than local agriculture. This is big. It's like, oh, you mean that corporation has more rights to the land in our community than we do? Where did that come from? Well, that was something that happened in Abraham Lincoln's day when they were trying to allow railroads to have right of passage through a town. And then, Okay, how do we undo that? It's a slow, meticulous process. He's not new to this radio thing. He used to have an awesome show on the wonderful WFMU, right before DJ Rupture. I went to one of his first recording sessions earlier this year, out in a basement studio on the campus of Queens College, where he now teaches. And Rushkoff had just finished his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which is about the trouble with an economy obsessed with growth for the sake of growth. And he was about to embark on a book tour, but... He seemed most excited about the podcast, about the chance to talk to what he describes as real people doing real things and doing it on his terms. The first episodes include people like filmmaker Astra Taylor and Esteban Kelly, the labor activist, talking about things like money, student debt, worker cooperatives, and the political power of art. There's also dispatches from the field and music by Mike Watt and Fugazi. Check it out. It launches this week at teamhuman.fm, but we're giving you a little sample of it here. In this excerpt, Richard Maxwell talks about the impact that our electronics are having on the planet. It's a topic that Motherboard has explored a lot. In fact, editor Brian Merchant is right now off working on a book that's sort of on this theme. And it's an especially poignant one as the new iPhone comes out this week. It's going to be the most environmentally friendly iPhone yet, I suspect. And yet, as Rushkoff reminded me recently, and this is something that he heard from Professor Maxwell, the most environmentally friendly phone is the one that you're holding right now. Anyway, here's Douglas Rushkoff with Richard Maxwell on episode two of the new Teen Human podcast. Joining Team Human today is Dr. Richard Maxwell. He's professor of media studies here at Queens College, a political economist and the author of the Rutledge Companion to Labor and Media and Greening the Media, which he wrote along with Toby Miller a couple of years ago. And that's kind of what I want to speak with him about today. Guiltily, I, I am now leasing a new Jeep something, Cherokee, right? And... I get in this thing, and it, it does every. It's beautiful in there. You just wouldn't know that there's any problem in the world. That the seats heat you. So I'm in there, and I'm driving. I'm thinking about 
Well, you know, I'm here in a big, awful, gas-guzzling American car doing bad things, and I stop at the light, and when I stop at the light, the car goes off because it's saving gas. So all of a sudden, I realize Chrysler or whoever, Monsanto, whoever owns this thing, they're addressing that problem. They made me feel good about, you know, even though I've got this awful Jeep, it actually stopped. And of course, I know from reading Greeting the Media that uh, there's this vast, invisible territory that the harm I'm doing every day with all my stuff and my highly digital electronic carbon-filled lifestyle, the damage I'm doing is just invisible to me. And it's only really by reading a book like yours that I can see what's going on on the other end of all this stuff. So I guess my my first question to you is, how did all of this become invisible? And how do we how do we become conscious of it again? How do we bring it back into our awareness? You can blame academics for a lot of it becoming invisible. The invention of the idea of post-industrialism was one of the biggest scams ever perpetrated on people who were reading this stuff at the time. Industrialism didn't end, of course. It was just this ongoing, never-ending industrialism. It just got displaced. And the geopolitics of that, as you know, push a lot of the work in factories to China. So we don't see a lot of the smokestack industries. We don't see a lot of the the environmental impact of the old-time Rust Belt smokestack industries that used to populate this country in places like Flint. And, of course, when capital moves, people don't, which is another issue. But you see the, you see the outcomes of that. I like to say sometimes when we look at these technologies like, um, like a smartphone, totally clean, you could eat off it. But a better representation of a smartphone would be if the thing had an exhaust pipe, little puffs of smoke were coming out of the back of it because really it's connected still to the old-fashioned industrial supply chain. If you become aware of that, it's still hard to comprehend. But its invisibility is partly to do with this enchantment we have with advanced technology, which appears to a lot of people like magic. Right. Well, I'm using my little cell phone, and all i got to do at night, I plug it in. It's got the tiniest little thing. It must just be using a little trickle at three drops of, of electricity, and then back I am. I get a whole other day. What's wrong with that picture? Well, it's true. At the consumer level, the little drips and drabs of, of pollution and, and energy consumption don't amount to much. But when you take it in the aggregate, you start to see numbers, in at least in the telecom and network economy, that, that are rivaling aerospace at this point. But you have to put it all together. The costs uh, of energy that go into the, the chips that go into the manufacture of laptops, smartphones, tablets, and everything else don't really get accounted for in the end. So if you put it all together, including when it's plugged into the network and you're running these cloud-based services and the server farms that are running all of this stuff and the AC that they have to run, it all adds up to about equivalent to what the aerospace industry is, is dumping into the atmosphere. Now you had a figure in the book, the idea that, that one cell phone uses something like two refrigerators worth of electricity. Well, it's a controversial number, but it has been argued that if you watched uh, an hour of Netflix a week at the highest uh, resolution you possibly can, it equals the consumption of about two refrigerators. The consumption over a year of two refrigerators, that's a controversial issue. But, and those things are very hard to, to measure. But that's something that raises the question, how much of this invisible, clean industry is really doing damage to the environment on a, on a par with some of the sort of traditional industrial industries that we're used to seeing. Right. So on the one hand, with all of these digital technologies that we all think are so clean, or, oh, I'm using screens now instead of a printer, so therefore, you know, God's going to love me, we know that that's all 
false now, not just because there might not be a God, but because it's not actually environmentally sound necessarily using this stuff. Then there's an entire other range where you talk about, well, in the in the latest book about labor, where there's an also this sort of hidden landscape of labor, whether it's little kids going into mines to get the rare earth metals for your rechargeable battery or people in China jumping out windows who don't want to make iPods. I mean, how did that get hidden from us? Well, let me talk about God first. You know, when we think about how we're bad or we're good with the consumption of these digital devices, there's a range of ethical um, positions you can take. And of course, you know, most of us are really human centric. So we can do good in the eyes of God, if you want to put it that way, if we think about the impact on our children of the things that we're doing today, the impact on communities, um, you know, the differential impact that, of course, people of color experience across the planet when it comes to building and then consumption of these goods. So if you were to consider whether you're going to heaven or not along the spectrum, doing good by the planet versus doing good by people is a, is a good way to measure your contribution to whatever it is you, you think of as um, your challenge for improving your life. If you think about labor, primarily it's an anthropocentric or human-centered uh, view of how we take care of the world. However, you also see this sort of intermix. We've ignored nature to the same extent we've ignored labor, and it's disappeared, you know, as capital and these devices and commodities take take over and kind of, kind of uh, enchantment with all of these things. It becomes the first thing that we think about, rather than the links to those workers in China, for example. And this is one of the hardest things for a lot of people who are using these devices, is to see themselves in the same world as the, as the Chinese worker doing 12-hour shifts or 16-hour shifts, cleaning the, the screens off the iPhone or getting up in the middle of the night and finishing a 10,000-order uh, uh, thing from Apple. And to see our lives as connected to those lives and having some sense of solidarity with them and then consuming with that in mind, that's very, very, very hard. And it's the one thing I discovered with the labor book is those, those connections aren't really well made, especially between people in, you know, advanced societies like the U.S., economically advanced societies like the U.S., where we have lots of people working in the industry, graphic artists, uh, students who are, you know, doing all of this stuff. And even here with our pod, we're disconnected from where all this stuff came from. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And... You know, how do you link that up? So what's the appropriate response for conscious people listening to this program? Is it that we, you know, upgrade our computer, you know, replace your laptop less often? Is it on the level of individual behavior, consumer type choices? Or is there some more fundamental change that we need to push for? Well, it's always easy to put it on the shoulders of the consumer. And it's always easy to guilt the consumer and say, you know, keep your cell phone for longer or whatever. And it's a good practice, actually, to reuse or to figure out ways to extend the life of any devices. You know, when you were shopping around for a car, for example, I think I told you the most environmentally sound card that you, that you can get is the one you already own because of the cost of making a new one. Even though you buy a, you know, an advanced, technologically advanced, more ecologically sound device, it's still going to be better for the environment if you keep 
as long as you can these devices. So when you talked about the two refrigerators and and the streaming, you're not talking also about refrigerators are built to last for 20 years now. Phones are built to last for two years or to be cycled out every two years because of built-in obsolescence. That has been a business strategy since the light bulb. From reading your work, it feels like the the quest for more, more, more on the individual level is really just a reflection of the underlying economic operating system's demand for growth. That, that you know, Marx showed us this, you know, back when, that if you have an economic rule set that requires the accumulation of capital in order to operate, that's how it functions, that's how it stays alive, then of course we're going to have to buy more and more stuff. Absolutely. We have to keep it in check, obviously, but there is pressure on us to c- accumulate because accumulation is a representation of wealth. Every commodity that's added to the list of all the good things that we have in this society is somehow represented as, as true well-being and, and true wealth. And plenitude is every child should have a computer. Not really. I mean, there are ways to you know cut it back and tone it down, but you see all this repeated over and over again. Buy or die. Shop till you drop. These things are really underlying a lot of the ways people think in a consumer society. And these are the underlying values here. A a culture of sustainability would ask different questions. Do you think we could even get there, though? Do you have hope that we can somehow turn that corner? Well, we go back to the question about what the consumer can do. That's, you know, you can train yourself to be better at this as an individual, but really it's the institutional um, purchasers of these goods, the ones who can really make a difference. And I, you know, include even Walmart in that. When, when Walmart has a sustainability list of products, everybody looks at that because they're a big buyer. And when Walmart decides, oh, people like organic yogurts and, and push off the shelf the more industrial versions of these yogurts and people buy it, Walmart changes the nature of the game. So it kind of builds in a scale to a more sustainable way of doing these kinds of consumption. But it's the institutional players like universities and governments, the big buyers of technology that could really put pressure on the industry to make a cleaner industry. The overall revolution that you're talking about is really a, a you know a long-term project. But we don't don't start with the consumer so much, although it's really nice to have a kind of moral compass. But think about the politics around, you know, these large purchases, the politics around when we talk about trade, international trade, and all the other things that, you know, the big the big governments are talking about get involved at that level, too. And you've seen the governments in the Paris conference, the COP21, really there was a lot more realpolitik than there was in an address of the science and the, and the emergency needs we have in this ecological crisis. So you can't always trust the government, but you press, you and you press, and you press. And every company that says they're going to do a supplier audit or a sustainability study makes themselves vulnerable to consumers who are interested to say, okay, all right, you know, News Corporation, you said you're going to do it since 2007. Step up. Let's see the results. Apple, you said you're going to do it since 2010. Let's see the results. So you can actually, you know, take them at their word and say, okay, we believe you. Now show us what you've done. As soon as they say they're going to do it, they're vulnerable. So, you know, welcome that as well. So, I mean, you know, those of us on Team Human and elsewhere can fight the fight, take it to institutions and take it to government, but it still feels as though eh, we'll be on the record as having been on the good team <laughs> when the ship goes down. And the Martian anthropologists who research later will say, oh, there were some people here who objected to the way this species annihilated itself. Do you think we can get out of the mess? Do you think it's still possible? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't be teaching, you wouldn't be writing if you didn't hold out some hope that we can fix it. Yeah. 
We've talked about this before. You, you start talking about this. Within two weeks, the students face a total wall of despair. And then the real question is, what's the answer? And the answer is to organize, to become, to become more activist in, in your attitudes towards these changes. You can do it on a small scale as a consumer to make these changes, but getting involved in some of the sustainability projects around the world and, you know, organizations like Good Electronics, based out of Amsterdam, doing great work raising awareness in the European Union about how these consumer goods are connected to workers in, in the factory zones in China and elsewhere, and, you know, how you can make a difference as a country, as a city, or uh, on a larger scale by insisting that there be local changes, regional changes, even national or even international changes. So get involved. But we're talking also about technologies which help us get this message out. So, you know, the idea of greening the media was let's get our stuff together because we're going to be using these technologies. You know, every Greenpeace organizer has a tablet in their hand. And the idea is when we're talking about greening the world, we have to be always greening the media at the same time because we're using these tools to help the effort. And, you know, we want to have sustainable goods, sustainable products, and we want to use them in in an environmentally conscious way while we're making the world better. Well, thanks for helping us uh, not only see the hidden landscape of our uh, the impact of our technologies, but uh, teaching us a bit maybe how to listen to some of the uh, beings and uh, features of our reality that don't have a seat at the table just yet or don't have enough money to lobby with or <laughs> or, uh, or a means of hiring a lobbyist to argue on behalf of this species or those rocks. Or and, the workers. Or the workers. Or the workers, for that matter, who are are good old me- good old fashioned members of team human and thanks for what you do you know for trying to uh, uh, awaken and enlighten uh, young people in particular to some of the errors of our ways but in in a fashion that empowers them to do something about it rather than just uh, run screaming which is uh, uh, t- you know too often our response yeah well i thank them and i thank the activists who've been working in this field for a long time and, you know talking to our students you see there's a lot more hope there's a lot more energy and there's a lot more interest in making those changes happen. But there's yet hope. Yeah, <laughs> there's hope. Well, thank you, Dr. Richard Maxwell, the author of Greening the Media and the new Rutledge Companion to uh, Labor and Media. We hope to have you back. And please, as you find other great members of Team Human, send them our way. we Will do. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Today's show was made possible thanks in part to an underwriting donation provided by Zago, strategic design studio committed to positive social change. Our friends at Zago also designed our logo and helped me with the visual design and website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. I'm Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace.
motherboard. Boop. Motherfucker.